Uh, Marissa Wilson is a DPhil graduate of the in social anthropology from uh, Oxford. Her work focused on moral economies of food in Cuba, and I, I know her from that time. She is now senior lecturer in critical human geography at the University of Edinburgh, and her research continues to be focused on the Caribbean, on Cuba, Trinidad and Tobago, and Jamaica in particular. More recently, it's included investigation of transatlantic sugar networks that link the West Indies and Scotland. So she's increasingly interested in how sensory, digital, and performative methods might be used to co-create stories about transnational food commodities, such as sugar. To that end, she's speaking today to the title of Sensing Sugaropolis, Geographies of Sugar in Greenock, Scotland. It's an intriguing title, Marissa. I will. I changed the title. But, you know, geographies of sugar and transnational sugar is pretty similar. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this paper draws from sensory oral history research conducted by myself and colleagues from Aberté and St. Andrew Universities. I should say that a lot of it is secondary historical research as well, which you'll find out. Our research focused on the town of Greenock, Scotland. During the second half of the 19th century, Greenock became known as Sugaropolis the sugar capital of Scotland, because it refined more sugar than any other place in the United Kingdom outside of London. As Sidney Mintz's work, Sweetness and Power, revealed, sugar is not just a commodity, but a set of social relationships across space and time. As Mintz argued, the sugar industry has long connected people, places, and things, creating a global workforce of agricultural producers in the West Indies, and working class consumers in the United Kingdom. Yet, while Mintz largely focused on global relationships, the way sugar connected people in places across the Atlantic, my focus here is similar, but slightly different. Here I explore the ways that the sugar industry established geographical and social connections and disconnections within and out with what was arguably an internal colony of Britain, the Highlands of Scotland. As in the West Indies, Scotland's sugar and shipping industries depended on the transnational movements of people, capital, and things. And as in the West Indies, Greenock's own sugar barons, from Robert Wallace, the first MP of Greenock in the mid-18th century, who owned four West Indian sugar plantations, to the so-called gentlemen of the sugar trade, who speculated on sugar. These people benefited first from the unpaid work of enslaved West Africans, and then from a mass population of migrant workers who moved to Greenock to work on herring buses first and later in the sugar and shipping industries. Along with the violent movement of West Africans to the Caribbean, Greenock's sugar and shipping industries depended on movements of Irish and Highland populations pushed from their subsistence economies with the capitalization of agriculture in rural north and pulled by opportunities for factory, shipyard, and other industrial work in lowland Scotland cities such as Greenock. On both sides of the Atlantic, then, transnational sugar spaces were multiply inhabited, involving different people across places and spaces from migrant free and unfree working classes to planters, bankers, slavers, refiners, grocers, and people in government, as a quote from Mintz, who benefited from slavery-derived wealth through the accumulation of property and capital, but also, as we shall see in the case of Greenock, 
from the ability to breathe clean air free from the nasty and possibly contaminated smells of the sugar industry. So in this paper, I draw from our sensory uh, work, but also oral history data that we've, we've conducted with older people in Greenock, um, and also quite a lot of secondary historical research. I do this to develop our understanding of the place of sugar in the history of Greenock and of Scotland more generally and I should say the place of slavery. So this research was carried out in 2018. Um, we carried out a couple of uh, research trips to Greenock. In the first, it was just myself interviewing about eight elderly people in Greenock, and it was oral history research. And part of that research captured a lot of the memories of some sugary treats that were enjoyed in Greenock. And we used those sugary treats. We reenacted, um, brought those sugary treats to Greenock in the second round of interviews a few months later, um, one of which was sugar alley water, something that people recalled during the, the interwar period, during the rations, when you have, when they, they used to get licorice and put it into glass bottles that you would get from the pharmacy, put it under their beds, and then drink the sugar alley water as a treat. Now this talk, I'm not going to talk so much about sugar alley water, but we will um, reflect on some of the oral history research a little bit in the beginning and a little bit more towards the end. So here is an audio uh, clip of one of the interviews. Penny caramel. Penny caramel. It was a big thing. It was a caramel sweet. It was a penny. That was a big thing. Yeah, my granny's caramel. What did you do? Did you trade sweets or things like that with children amongst your friends? Or did you? You give me part of yours and I'll give you part of mine. That's what we used to do. We didn't give it away. No, no, no. You give me part of yours and I'll give you part of mine. Some different things. Okay. As I'm concerned, I don't think there was anything else to trade, unless it was cigarette cards or something, but there was nothing else to eat. And I can't even recall if in the early um, 1940s, you're talking about a sweet shop, they hadn't really much to sell. I can't remember what shop. There was a shop that we could go in and you could get this. Mm. Um, but I could not tell you, it wasn't like a sweet shop where it was all Maybe stuff it was a house. Was no, it a house? No, it was definitely a shop. There's one in Port Glasgow. Yeah. On the uh, Supreme. Yeah. Was, was that Street John? Her in Screen. That's up for that. Up for Bell Street. It was in there. Gown Street. A Gown Street. Mm -hmm. It was a sweetie shop there. But you had to have your cookies. And I remember when the seats were more fresh. And we were up there. And oh, it was absolutely fantastic. Just buy any seats you wanted. Mm -hmm. You can do that before. Yeah. Yeah. There's a shop still in Lars and that reminds you of the youth because when you go in it's all the jars. Oh, yeah. it's all that and the counter's glass and there's all the tablets and no, I, mm. you know, but I mean when we were young it was even when you went into the tally shop mm. um, up along was all the jars and all the different bottles <laughs> of those, no 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 I want one of those, you know, that kind of thing. So sorry for the lengthy audio, but um, I think this is a really interesting um, snip, snippet um, that really reflects on the shift between the interwar period or in after World War II 
in the 1940s to the 1950s when the Russians um, were receded and there's a kind of idea of freedom to, to be able to buy any sweetie that people wanted as children. They wanted to go into these shops and be able to buy sweeties um, and, the, and the jars and the memories of the site, how wonderful it was to, to experience that again um, during after the, the period of rations. But as Mintz reminds us, this freedom to consume sugary treats from penny caramel to boiled sweets from tablets to macaroons was the product of a long history of capitalist industrialization, which saw the transformation of sugar and other products such as white wheat bread from luxuries reserved only for upper classes in the 16th and 17th centuries to everyday necessities that provided energy for the working classes in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it is during the 18th and 19th centuries when the archetypal British diet consisting of sugary tea, bread, dairy, and meat, became a staple for working classes across the UK, a substance that provided energy, but also was a symbol of progress. Indeed, commodities such as sugar and tea were not only part of the social wage that drugged British workers into long hours of toil in the factories. The shift towards a British diet was central to the project of improving the nation, the civilizing mission to improve backward places across Britain. The largest of these backward areas was the Highlands of Scotland. So my colleague Charles Withers identifies the age of improvement as 1746, after the Jacobite rebellion and its ending with the Battle of Cullenden. The Disarming Act of 1746 banned traditional dress and instruments this is uh, Gallic dress and instruments such as the bagpipes. And this and other measures sought to destroy, quote, destroy the traditional society of the Highlands, including, quote, the clanship way of life. This is a civilizing mission that included traditional dress, Gallic dress and music, but also language, the, the Gallic language, education, um, and agriculture industry, and as I will argue, diet as well. Adam Smith, who's pictured here in one of my favorite squares in Edinburgh, advocated agricultural improvements in the Highlands. As historian Eric Richards argues, Smith's Wealth of Nations was a Bible to the Highlands improvers. Although Smith himself had, quote, little direct knowledge of the Highlands himself, for, for Smith, the Highlands was a perfect example of the poverty of nations tied by antiquated restrictions and organization. It was a victim of the poor division of labor, a backwater of feudalism that had been deprived of the benefits of trade too long. What were these antiquated restrictions and forms of organization that, that Smith spoke of? Life in the Highlands during the medieval and early modern periods was based on a central farming unit, the Clachan. Pardon my Gaelic, I'm gonna to try to pronounce some of these things. This was comprised of a small settlement of arable land surrounded by out, outlier lands of up to 100 acres used for grazing and crop rotations and beyond this common lands used for foraging and grazing. To use Eric Wolf's terms, this was a patriarchal peasant society based on norms of obligation and trust. And indeed, this is what Withers draws from, from Wolf to, to describe the Klachen. So the concept of, I'm going to try here, which you see in front of you, was central to this way of life. This was, as Elise Walk argues, 
based on the use of resources to satisfy the needs of the clan as a whole, not just the Highland chief. Of course, we must not romanticize here as this was a hierarchical system dependent on clan members as food producers and fighters who would protect the clan's resources from neighboring clans. Yet as Wach argues, this system was both ecologically and nutritionally efficient, providing a wide variety of foods, such as the foods listed here, and many of these foods were later deemed weeds by the improvers. And it's interesting also to, to note, as Elise Wach notes, is oats and barley were the only foods that were counted really in historical records because those were the foods that were used for rent. But there are a whole range of other foods that she meant that she um, explains, um, including these, but also uh, sources of protein. So in this system, there is a mix of arable cultivation, foraging, hunting, fishing, and sea, and also locks, and cattle rearing and dairying. dairying. This is a quite a, a diverse diet that you have in the early modern period. So then from the 18th to 19th century, we have this movement of improvement in the highlands. There's an increased concentration of lands for sheep farming. Uh, so you have landowners coming um, generally from the south, um, but also from, from across the UK. And they are interested in buying up large swaths of land, millions of acres in the end for sheep farming in the 18th century. Eventually what was used for hunting and deer and grouse hunting sort of hunting grounds for the rich in the 19th century. But crucially, with the changes in social property relations, there is a prohibition of the former commons that were crucial, that were important for, for the dietary and biological diversity of the Klachen. It also was important to note that uh, this change in social property relations led to the creation of semi-proletarian population, people who were not so much reliant on in-kind rent, um, but they needed money in order to pay uh, the, 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 um, the clan chiefs and also the landowners increasingly. And so you had a system of temporary migrations to the lowlands to conduct work and then to move back the areas uh, to the farming highlands. And the role of the herring industry was really important at this stage, and we're talking about the 18th century. Um, and the herring um, industry here, this was a herring that was salted and ship shipped over to the West Indies to feed enslaved people. So there's a direct link here to profiting from the, the plantation economy. The lowland areas such as Greenock were, were, were really important for the herring industry. They, the first port in Scotland was in Greenock, and that was in the early, that was um, 17, early, it was early 18th century. Um, and from that, those ports, um, from that port, the herring went over to the West Indies. So for a long time, there was a coexistence. As we know in anthropology, you know, there's not a drastic change in culture. It doesn't change. Culture doesn't, doesn't all, all of a sudden disappear. But there's, there's um, a transition and there's a change in culture. There's not something that clanship does, never really disappeared. It's just changed. However, you have the increasing industrialization and capitalization of this area and the increasing influence of uh, values that came from the lowlands and from European elite, values of in, um, individualism and the value of money. So in this period, you had this market economy that was forming. It was 
crucially attached to the West Indian economy, but it was also forming in the Clyde region. It became, the Clyde was, uh, the Clyde is, I should say, a river that runs through the area that links the highlands to Greenock. And I'm gonna show you a map in a minute, just now. So this is Greenock here, you can see. This is the Clyde going up. And from the Clyde, people, ships were able to come through and go all the way across the Atlantic. So the Clyde was a crucial thoroughfare, a, a crucial uh, river that was really important for early trade. And in fact, Greenock had a port uh, earlier than Glasgow. And this is Glasgow here. The highlands start here. This is Argyle, and this is one of the areas of the highlands. And the highlands, uh, most of the highlanders came from the area of Argyle, Argyleshire. Ian McKinnon, who's a historian who I think is really important for this recent work that's really linking the industrialization of the highland changes in land ownership in the highlands to, to slavery, has looked into this and has also long argued about um, the highlands as a neo-colony. Um, so there is a connection here to the model of colonization, which is really interesting because there's a connection that earlier um, in the UK, well, the British Empire established this idea that of center and periphery of um, West Indies, for example, as being like the countryside supplying goods for the metropolis. Um, it was an international idea of, of core and periphery. But in this, that was, that was preceded um, this period where you have uh, the same kind of model, but being used at a much smaller geographical scale, just between the lowlands of Scotland here and, uh, and the highlands. So this was uh, what McKinnon calls an internal colonization. And it, it, was in, it was supported by capital that came from the West. And much of this capital came through after, oh, I put 1933, it's 1833, apologies. Uh, it's, it's Slavery Abolition Act was in 1833. And what that did was gave people, many of the, the wealthy and maybe even not so wealthy uh, Britons who are in the colonies got compensation for the for the their loss of so-called property, um, which were the enslaved people who were not yet free but were technically free at this point. They would still had to go through uh, over a decade of indentureship after this. So this brought in loads of money um, to many different people across the UK, but in the Highlands, this money, this is 16 billion pounds in 2020, and the equivalent of, of 2020 when this was written, McKinnon and McKillop wrote this. This brought in so much money, and a lot of the money was actually used to buy up lands in the Highlands, is what their argument is. And this connects to earlier historical research by Tom Devine and others about who, who talks about the revolution in land ownership of the 1830. Again, the Slavery Abolition Act was in 1833. What's also interesting is it's the same period when you have a mass migration, permanent migration now, not just temporary, of former tenants and taxmen who were the intermediaries between the clan chief and the tenant. All of those people, many of those people moved then to, to lowland areas such as Greenock during this period. So it's a revolution in land ownership. McKinnon and McKillick argue that one third of the total area, and they have they've have historical evidence to show that one third of the total area of the Western highlands and islands 
were bought up with the proceeds of slavery. Now, they've only just begun this research, and they argue that in Argyllshire, there's a definite um, take-up of uh, land ownership by the new elite that came in who received money during this period. There was also an old elite who received a lot of money also from, from the plantation economy prior to this, this, this date. So there is a wave of new working classes coming into Greenock, not only from the Highlands, but also from Ireland, who experience similar kind of land wars and land unrest, similar pressure to move from rural subsistence economies. In Greenock, uh, originally, these people were othered. They didn't belong. There was a kind of ethnic hierarchy that developed in Greenock, which I can't go into here, but it's another aspect of this history. So it's interesting because, you know, somebody in, this is W.H. Morick in, in 1936, says that Greenock is as much noted for its Celticism as for its rainfall, which I find interesting because every time I've gone to Greenock, it's been raining. So let's move back to diets in Greenock and, the, and what happened to these migrants who moved, who were dislocated and dispossessed. I think it's really useful to use the concept of cultural transition here. And this comes from Jeff Rayner and Tim Lang. There's nutrition transition, but Jeff Rayner and Tim Lang talk about a whole series of different kinds of transition. And one of those is a cultural transition. And it's a transition away from a kind of patriarchal or hierarchical society, but maybe a society that has rich symbolic attachments to the land and attachments to community in some ways, to a world where there's more individualism, there's more complexity, and people are decoupled from nature. Now, that's quite a simplistic portrayal, but I think it's useful in understanding this transition that the Highlanders moving into Greenock experienced. In the 18th and 19th century, there is a shift then from clan agriculture and in-kind payments of oats and barley to the increasing monetization, and then eventually this kind of freedom of choice, quote unquote. And towards the middle of the 19th century was when you had what Frank Trentman calls this free trade nation, where all of a sudden you can get sugar quite cheaply because the sugar duties were equalized and then repealed in 1874. And not surprisingly, perhaps there is a fall in dietary standards with the movement from rural to urban areas. So the Scots who moved, moved from porridge and milk to eating bread and sugary tea. And again, from Sydney Mints, we know that from the 1850s, the consumption of sugar used to be, which used to be a luxury for the upper class, as what now was basically a staple in working class diets and working class people uh, ate more sugar. Than, than upper classes at this period. What's interesting is that uh, nutritionists at the period were confused. They were a bit, uh, it was very perplexing why people who moved away from rural areas in Ireland and Scotland shifted away from healthier rural diets. It was a conundrum. Some of the explanations that we see in Mint coming from these authors is that the bread and sugary tea are parts of poverty line diet that you need to have a cup of tea. A cup of hot tea converted a cold meal into something like a hot one. So it's giving comfort because it's something hot and it's giving cheer. But it's also the idea that bread and sugary tea were, were convenient because there's a shift in working patterns and there's a shift in time and, and the lifestyles of people who had to go to the factory and, their, and the households working around factory hours where you needed convenience. But I think there's also something else 
going on here. There's an idea of progress as well that's linked to this improvement movement, this movement to improve society, to improve the nation. So this high energy diet of refined carbohydrates and animal protein was linked to progress. It was, uh, as Otter argues, the diet was commonly believed to provide the vital energy for what the nation needed. It was a kind of biopower of the state where we need to feed high energy diets to our workers and mostly men so that they can produce for the nation. So again, we see the reflection of Adam Smith in this idea of improvement. By 1900, we have a massive shift towards including sugar, and sugar comprised one-sixth of the daily calories for men, but also more for women and children. So there's an unevenness to consumption within the household at this period. And so there's more meat for the breadwinner. So we're going to go into some of the oral history material now. And one is discussion of fish and chips. Walton's work on fish and chips in the British working class attests to the fish and chip shop became a staple of working class communities. It was a center of social life that was inclusive of all members of the family. Unlike the pub or the football ground, which was generally restricted to adult men. So in this instance, I find this really interesting quote from the oral history, mainly because when the wages came in, you can see just a sense of how little money is coming in. And when it actually does come in every week, there's no food left in the house. So you have to go to the chip shop. So I remember I had an older brother. There's a kind of hierarchy of division of who gets what within the house. You, you see there's three or four children here and there's a pecking order. My father used to get the fish. Melio used to keep the skin on the back of the fish and then put the batter on it. And he didn't like the skin. So we were all sitting there waiting and my father, he would give you a bit. So that's as near as you got to the fish was the skin. I loved it. So you can see here, uh, interestingly, the meat, when fish and chips was seen as something that was for everyone, the space was for everyone, perhaps, but not the actual dietary benefits. Again, that is for the breadwinner. So uneven household consumption was reflected in the fish and chip example, but also it's, it's reflected in this model of the breadwinner. This is the idea that energizing foods should be reserved for the breadwinner from this it's it comes from this idea of the biopower of feeding the nation feeding the pe the workers who are industrializing the nation but it's trickled down in some ways to a kind of gendered and generational norms within the household but as Ellen Griffith argued higher wages did not result in improved levels of nutrition at the population level she uses height data to show this she says industrialization raised male incomes but at the same time it changed patterns of behavior that had historically helped to ensure that children received the food they needed. High wages went hand in hand with the erosion of age-old social pressures upon men to provide for their families, resulting in the divergence between male wages and family living standards. It's interesting also to reflect on Griffin's work and relate it as well to some of the oral history material that we were able to uh, elicit during our research. So Griffin's research shows that a lot of the unevenness of distribution of foods, protein within households had to do with drinking, uh, men's drinking. So this is reflected again in the oral history, history material. And I'm sorry for all of the words here, but I think this is such a good quote. It was hard to cut it down. There's a pub down there. There are two doors into the pub and we came out from this door and we were into what is called a snug. When you went in, it was tiny. It's this little tiny space 
that was reserved for people to go in and be able to communicate and then go right out again. So find somebody who's sitting, find one of the, your father or find your husband who's sitting there drinking and then go right out again. So it would only go from you to me here, only go from you to me. It was just a tiny space. And there is one wooden bench against the wall with one table. And there is two women sitting there. They would knock the window and the only woman in the pub was a barmaid. She would open the window, give them their wee drink, and shut the window again. And all sitting around the window, you could see on the inside, it was just men. Men only went to the pub. Women, that was as far as they got to that wee snug. Or if your mother was unfortunate enough to miss your day before you got to the pub, straight from work on pay night, you would get sent and you would have to go to the wee snug and knock the thing. So that means you as a child would get sent and have to go into the pub and into this little snug, this little area, in order to find your father before he spent all the money. And the hatch would open. You would say to the barmaid, are you going to tell my dad that my mummy says I have to go and take the money, the money home? And she would go away because she knew who you were and she would go and she would get your dad. And if you were lucky, he would give you some money and you would take it home. And there would be a big row when you got home later on showing me up. It feels like centuries ago. And then there is a bit of chatter around this discussion. You wouldn't question that. As a child, you could not question the situation. You didn't question it. Every family had something similar to that. Right, so here's some more quotes. So all of us were very heavy drinkers, the sugar workers. The station bar was a local for the Westburn, which was a refinery. It was open at all hours. You drank during the day when you were supposed to be sleeping and then went to work the night shift. Interesting to compare this with Greenwood, with James Greenwood's account of the sugar baking when he went into a refinery. And it's a kind of very interesting description of what was happening within that refinery in 1876. No wonder that the poor wretches so employed drink much beer. With no more exertion than leisurely walking about demanded, before I had been to, in the factory a quarter of an hour, I was drenched with perspiration, and it was not a moment free from trickling down my face. To be sure, since indulgence in beer assists the sugar baker in his work, it is commendable in the master to provide it. But as I am informed, it is in his power to carry his kindness a step further. He can abridge the sugar baker's laboring hours. As a sugar worker, as a baker, we can get into detail about you know the, what, the various roles within the refineries, if you like, later. The sugar baker works all hours. What he calls a fairest day's work is 12 hours, but it is not rare for him to be kept at slavery above described for 16 and even 18 hours from three o'clock in the morning till eight at night without a penny of overtime or extra pay. In the oral histories as well, it was pretty clear that 12 hours was quite a normal amount of work. It was usually when people had to cover for their mate who was going on holiday that you would have 12 hours and sometimes even more. But you can see that there wasn't, um, I think during the time that I did the interviews, that we did these interviews, people um, could not drink inside when they were working, not like the Irish men and who were working here and who actually were drinking the whole time. I think they were given eight wheat pints of beer for the whole um, shift. So the sugar industry established socioeconomic, but also geographical divide. So this is reflecting working class foodways in Greenock. So you can see that diet is remade because the entire reproductive character and productive character of societies is recast and the very nature of time, work and of leisure, which comes from men. There's a whole shift in everyday life and livelihoods um, that is reflected in the stories here. 
So another story, it would be the case that the workers would go out and then they'd have a limited time. And this simply, I don't need to read the whole quote again here, but you can simply see from this quote that there's just one hour that workers would get before they had to be back. One hour for lunch. And they called it dinner because it was their main meal. But they had to go get a bus, get back home. Sometimes they would work pretty close to this is a case of the shipyard, so it's a bit different than the sugar. Um, but very, very quickly, you had to just eat and put it down. You left and you went back on the bus. One hour later, you're back at work again. So a really shift in time. There's no leisurely eating here. And there's also a change in having and always being stimulated by tea. You would have lots of tea, 40 cups a day when you're working. So it's not beer anymore. But you have tea, you have the workers drinking lots of tea. Um, uh, you have a cup, a plastic cup with your name on it. People would have plenty of sugar in their tea. And there are some interesting stories about actually chipping off some of the hard sugar, going to an area of the refinery where you didn't bring your own. Some people brought their own sugar. Other people actually went and, and took a bit of the sugar and chipped it off and put it into their teacups. This is just showing a lot of the inequalities. We, we've reflected on inequalities that happen within the household, but there are enormous differences between the diets of the poor and affluent, affluent sectors of society across the UK. But in this example, it really illustrates this. So you have the poorest eating just pea, butter, potatoes, and a small amount of meat, and maybe half of their calories in bread. And from the mid 19th century, this is a quote from a curator, of the museum in Greenock, who um, informed me that the average life expectancy was 40 in the mid-19th century. The housing was poor, there was TB, tuberculosis, cholera, you name it, we had it. And then he compares this with this, all of the venerable gentlemen. And I asked him to resend me a picture of this wonderful picture of the sugar exchange in Greenock from 1901. And I would bet that at least half of these venerable gentlemen here have benefited from slavery, from slavery-derived wealth, whether it's indirectly through sugar or directly by having relationships in their family, relation, personal uh, family relations who have who owned refineries in, in the past, not refineries, uh, plantations. So I am showing here so the sugar refinery established socioeconomic but also geographical divisions between the east and west ends of Greenock. So here is the dividing line that was indicated by the informants to divide the west end of Greenock with the east end. You can see that most of the refineries, these are all the refineries here, were in the east end. We have developed story maps for this project. And we have an online exhibition, which is called Remembering Sugaropolis, where you can find these story maps um, if you just look at Remembering Sugaropolis. But the story maps capture some of the social and geographical divides between East and West and, be the, and between the, the rich and poor in Greenock, including the locations and pictures of some of the grand houses in the West End owned by Greenock sugar barons. And here you see a picture of Abram Lyle, is from Tate and Lyle. And um, there's a number of these eminent gentlemen who owned massive houses in the West End, and you can visit them now. McKinnon and McKillop call these people indirect beneficiaries of slavery. They, they um, and their families um, benefited from the sugar industry, which was built upon the backs of the slaves maybe 100 years earlier, 
but it still was derived capital from that, uh, eco that economy. Now I'm gonna move on to some of the smelly memories. The divides that we talked about just now were vividly recalled when our research participants shared memories of the different smells of Greenock. It depended where you lived, but yeah. because of the shipyard, the housing was right up to practically the shipyard. So you would get the smells of all that, and then you had the refineries and all that. Right? But people lived in amongst it all. They lived where they were. So the woman in this recording emphasizes the short distance between workers' homes and the shipyards and factories that, where they worked. Um, and it really depends, I think it's for the sugar particularly, as you saw, the refineries were really well within the, the residential areas, maybe not so much for the shipyards all the time. She speaks of the smells of the shipyard and the sugar houses, which another interviewee called sickly sweet in reference to the smell of the raw sugar being transported and the processing of dark syrupy molasses in the factories. These smells were stronger in the East End where the workers live. Another sm strong smell in Greenock was of the bones, that is the burning of bones into char. The charcoal from the bones was used to purify sugar and give it its white color. You had the, the molasses down there on the waterfront. And if you just go up and round the corner here at Baker's Bray, you get the smell of the bones that were being burnt for, for charcoal, which was quite strong. People that lived quite close must have all had to keep their windows shut all the time because of the, the smell, yes. So this is uh, where pointers, that, where she's referring to the bones. These are camel bones that were taken from Egypt very large bones that were used to purify sugar. And I need to find out more about how that happened. But I know that there's some industrial effluence that came out of the process, mainly arsenic. And, I, and the oral history work also touched upon some respiratory problems around this area. And it's a bit of a touchy subject, I think, for these people who are still living in Greenock. So I'll just leave it at that. So the industrial process of burning bones for char, again, it was carried out in the small chemical plant. So apparently the smell of the bones was pretty bad. So here we have a quote that says it's horrible. Along with a vivid description of the smell, Elizabeth's words remind us of the transnational nature of Greenex sugar industry. Again, like the capital workers and the sugarcane itself, camel bones used to make char for purifying the sugar had to be imported from abroad, in this case, Egypt. Most interestingly, perhaps, given the emphasis on transnational sugar in this paper, is the way smells of the sugar industry moved from west to east. The sickly smell of the docks, the horrible smell of the bones, the smell of burnt sugar at the refineries moved with the westerly winds. And according to the Greenlockians we interviewed, the founders of Greenock were very much aware of this fact. There is therefore an uneven geography of Greenock's sugary smellscape. Working classes in the East End had to smell it while privileged others such as shipyard and sugar house owners in the West End were shielded from the unpleasant smells. Sensory research such as this sheds light on capitalist processes that would otherwise remain abstract. In this case, the intangible traces of uneven industrial development in one of Scotland's first modern cities. The histories and geographies of Greenock and the Highlands recounted here reveal deep changes to the social fabric of Scottish society from the 18th to the 20th centuries. These changes are due to the colonization 
the modification and industrialization of land, people, and food in this area of the world, but could not have happened without the incredible wealth acquired through the plantation economy in the West Indies. Shifting scale to urban Greenock, similar inequalities became embodied in differential consumption patterns within and between households, reflected in the smells wafting through Greenock's industrial landscape. As research participants recalled, the town was stinky, sweet-smelling, foggy, noisy. Sensory memories of taste, drawn upon at the beginning of this talk, also uncover the crucial role of sugar in the everyday life of Greenock. While sugar may have been a spurious level of status, to use Mintz's words, in the 18th and 19th centuries, and a symbol of improvement by the end of the World War, it might have been a symbol of improvement, but by the end of the World Wars, it became a necessity boosting participants' feeling of dignity after a long period of rations. We see here that sugar is a substance. It's something that affects bodies, but it's also a symbol of improvement, sociality, and dignity. These symbolic qualities of sugar must be seen in light of the long histories of industrialization and uneven development. Maybe you know this, but Scotland has the highest levels of sugar consumption in the UK. And the Glasgow area, which includes Greenock, has the highest levels of sugar consumption in Scotland. So I'll end with this quote, um, which comes from Stanley's book. And, you know, is it possible that these long-term processes of inequality maybe have more pervasive impacts on health and inequality of a more recent or origin? Thank you.